Hi, my name is Evelyn, and I'm a Spanish tutor and academic consultant at the CWLT at the University of Puget Sound. I'm a junior majoring in economics with minors in math and Spanish, and I use she, her pronouns. Hi, my name is Janelle. I'm a writing advisor, and I'm also a senior studying English and economics, and I use she, her pronouns. We've decided to call our podcast The Nook because some of the best memories we've had at the CWT were conversations in our center's Nook. The Nook is a place where tutors and 2Ds get to know each other, have meaningful conversations, and generally have a good time. Today on our podcast, we have Chloe Brew. Chloe is a writing advisor and a Greek tutor, right? Yeah. yeah. Awesome. Uh, Chloe, do you want to introduce yourself? Maybe give us your major, minor, role in the CWLT and other things that you're involved with on campus. Yeah, so I'm Chloe as previously stated. I use she, her pronouns. I am a senior. I am an art history and classics double major and a gender queer studies minor. So I, in short, just look at ancient Greek images of women and call it good. Uh, I work as a writing advisor for the past two years and an ancient Greek subject tutor for the last like year and a half. And besides the CWLT, I'm also a peer ally on campus and I'm part of Greek life. And I used to do more things when we were in person and now I do none of them. But I used to do RDG and Luau and I was a part of a couple of different affinity groups, but now we're just vibing, vibing at home. I'm going to miss the luau. I forgot. Oh, that's sad. Yeah, it's going to be the 50th anniversary, so big deals. That's disappointing. Yeah. Evelyn, do you want to go ahead with our first question? Sure. Why do you think it's important for college students to get involved on their campus? And we made this question with the fact that you are so involved on campus. So we wanted to see what your thoughts were on how important it is. Yeah. Um, okay. I think speaking from personal experience, also, I'm sorry, my dog is sitting next to me and he's breathing very heavily. So if that comes across, I apologize. Um, speaking from personal experience, when I first came into college and like I had this idea in my head that I'm like, oh, I'm going to be the person that like I always thought I wanted to be like in high school. And I'm going to be like super involved and like do everything and like be like this ideal version of myself in my head. And then as I finally actually started to get involved with things and really figure out like what's manageable for me and what's actually like workable. Hi, can you not do that? Um, I figured out that by being involved in actually doing things that I was interested in, it helped me become more comfortable with who I am as an individual and also really helped solidify the idea that like I don't have to change to be happy with who I am, but I just have to be comfortable with where I am and how I'm progressing at my own pace. But being involved with different groups and organizations on campus has like not only helped me grow into the person that I wanted to be, not that I first thought I would, but it's also helped me form communities and relationships that I know I'm going to take beyond college and things, skills and applications that I can move into other things too. And it doesn't have to be like an academic focused club or anything or like being in the CWLT has definitely 
given me different skills, but I also gained really valuable skills from like doing RDG and like having fun. Yeah, I think that's an important point that you learn a lot about yourself when you get more involved on campus. But like you were saying with fun, it also just keeps you busy. And I think it's important, especially for first year students to stay busy. Our next question kind of ties into campus involvement. So specifically with the CWLT, what has most surprised you about working at our tutoring center? That's such a good question. Um, I think how much I have also learned from my role and not in a like, oh, I'm an ancient Greek tutor and like I'm constantly having to like restudy on like what I'm doing, but also like learning about myself as like a teacher, but also a studier and like a peer in a lot of ways and like talking with other students about what are study habits that they have or like how do you approach writing an essay and being like wow that's like a really good technique that I can use as somebody that's also still writing things or being able to talk to other students about like how do I try and like structure time or like how do I go about editing an essay and having this like peer-to-peer relationship in which it's not like I'm in a position of power like teaching you though in a way like there is a degree of that, but we're both students working to do like our best work in the moment that we're at and like how can we help each other in that way? Yeah, I definitely think the CWT is a like a, I don't know, it's such a cool place that it borders that line of, you know, peer tutor, I guess. And how I, I feel like I learn more from like the people I tutor in the appointment that I'm like, you know, yeah. learning myself. And I think that's really cool. Yeah, yeah, I just had an appointment and we were talking about like, he asked this question about like, how do I make writing essays less painful? And I'm like, wow, that's such a good question. And I don't know if I have a good answer. And we ended up just chatting for a bit about like, what, like what makes it painful? Or like, what are you doing now? And like, being able to also share my experience as like, a senior that's hopefully planning on graduating next spring. And like, these are my experiences. And like, I'm glad that I'm able to share them with you is like you don't have to go through the same necessarily like struggles that I had to with having this information but at the same time like me learning things from like an in like a new freshman about like this is what I did in high school and like these are things that I'm still doing or like something new that I thought of that I can like apply to my academics and I'm like that's so smart I should be doing that and I will do it next semester but yeah yeah I definitely agree I think it's so cool that our role evolves as we continue to work in our role and we pick up new strategies along the way. And I remember when I first like was a tutor, I was under the impression that um, being a tutor means that you have to know everything, but that's not true. And what, like what I've learned and I'm sure you've learned is that, um, you don't have to know everything and it's okay to don't not know something and like being humble about those things and learning alongside the student is really like powerful. Mm-hmm. Should we go into our next question? Okay. So art is often subjective, but how do we go about evaluating art that is sometimes controversial? 
Um, give us your opinion. Give us your thoughts on art that inspires wildly different opinions. And maybe we should uh, kind of like preface where this question came from. So I don't know if you remember. I think it was in 2019, uh, the banana duct tape art. Oh yeah, yeah. Yeah. It and for listeners who don't know, it is literally a right banana duct tape to like a wall. And I think it's called um, The Comedian, and it sold for like $120,000. Yeah, I think, I think talking about art and controversy is a very interesting subject, because I think you could argue that all art is somewhat controversial. Um, but it also depends on like what kind of controversy you're talking about, like the banana duct tape art, like people are arguing like, is this art? Like, this is terrible versus like, this is the next medium. Like this is the next big thing. Um, but then you also have art that like becomes like political or social controversy of like, should you make this? Or like, should this be something that is like visually depicted and like immortalized in this way? But I think as far as the like banana duct tape, like next, mediums of art like I'm thinking it was being like viral for a minute but there were these students like these kids I don't know these people that went to like a modern art museum and they put like a pair of their sunglasses down on the ground and like just left it there to see if people would like think it's actually art or not or like part of an installation and like they noticed that like a bunch of these other like viewers and like people that are at the museum like stopping and like looking at them and like engaging with them like they're actually art which I think is just a like really funny like knowing the context but also like thinking about myself like if I was someone there I'd also be like oh like is this an interactive exhibition like what am I supposed to do but I think it's really tough to be like, oh, like this is quote unquote like bad art or this is like good art in a way um, because it also really complicates our understanding of like what is art and like we work within this very Western Eurocentric definition of like what does good art look like and what is art supposed to do like in functions when there's this like massive discussion about like what can we define as art in like a physical sense and what can we define as art in like an emotional sense like i think art whether good or bad is something that makes you feel whether that's like a positive emotion or a negative emotion or like i've seen art pieces and i'm like i could take it or leave it like it's nice to look at but like i'm not emotionally invested in this piece as I am or like connected as I am to another one and I think even art or like images that kind of just make you feel neutral are still a valid form of art and I don't know if this is answering the question or not but I think controversy is in itself inherent in art because it's always going to be arguable because there's no like one correct way to feel. I think that was a really profound answer. Maybe like the most <laughs> profound answer we've ever had on the podcast. I really like that definition too of like art makes you feel something and it doesn't have to be a good feeling either. 
I also had a follow-up question, and I don't really know how to say this, but do you think the medium of art like changes the way people perceive the art? Like, does the medium matter? Yeah, I think I think medium does matter. Like, I think from a viewer perspective, like, I know I'm definitely more drawn to certain mediums than other. Like, I have a really profound love for sculpture and, like, 3D sculpture, in particular, like, things that you can see in the round. But, like, also, I study Greek art, and a lot of what we have remaining of Greek art is, like, friezes or sculptures or like vase paintings like things that are meant to be seen in like a 3d sense and not as a flat 2d but that doesn't mean that i don't also like painting or anything but they're oh god i keep on thinking of things that i don't actually remember the name of but there is this scientist but she does these 3d models of storms um, and she talked about it on a TED talk. Uh, yeah, her name is Nathalie Meebach, my back, um, but she makes art that's made of storm data. So they're like these 3D like sculptures that are made out of like information about like wind pressure or like atmospheric like height of where the storms are being made. But she also presented in like a 3D model and then she presented it in like flat 2D data. And I think thinking about it as like what makes us more drawn to something. And like I definitely liked looking at the sculpture more than I liked looking at the data, even though they're both representing the same thing, they're just being done in different formats. But even like traditional, like quote unquote traditional uh, methodologies or like mediums of art, thinking about like painting versus like printing. Um, I think it goes back to thinking about emotionality and like the way which you connect to pieces is always going to be different. And sometimes like the way that we interpret like our own aesthetics or our own connections to art depends on how we can also feel this sense of like physicality of pieces. That sounds, um, the storm piece you were talking about sounds so interdisciplinary. Yeah. And I, I like that. Um, but I guess since we're on that subject of maybe like interdisciplinary stuff, now might be a good time to also plug sound writing because there's a chapter in there about like how to write for art history. And I'm wondering, since you have a lot of different um, interdisciplinary things in your major and minor, how do you, or do you have any tips maybe for how to write about art versus like if you're writing for something like GQS where you can apply, you know, text of like a theory? Yeah, yeah, I think, and actually I will say like a majority of the writing appointments that I ever have that are like, oh, I want to write, like I'm working on an art history thing. They're always the first thing that people ask is like, how do I write for art history? Because it's not like writing an English paper where you can like quote a book or you can talk about like an IPE paper where you're like citing examples, but your only piece of evidence usually is like the art piece itself. And like, how do you talk about art? Um, especially in like an academic sense. Uh, but I think what I usually try to recommend to other people writing about art is 
kind of breaking your thought process into two and like on one hand you have to talk about the physical piece itself so like what does the piece actually look like like what's the material like if you're talking about specific design elements like on a sculpture you might talk about the drapery of like what somebody's wearing and like how it gets gathered on one shoulder and then like brought down to the hip and like maybe it's a specific style of drapery like maybe they're chain drapes which is where it like hangs super low um and then on the flip side you also talk to talk about like the actual history of the piece and like why is it important that they're using this type of drapery or like what does that do for us as a viewer like it accentuates their body why does it matter that we're talking about the body are we talking about like this and like it has physical form like an idea being given shape or are we talking about like a critique of like do we have to emphasize a body and like a sense of like shape and physicality to get the same like end goal response like ideology communicated but yeah splitting into like physical piece and then like why it matters and I think a lot of writing for art history is like more so the like quote unquote so what part of things like I can look at a piece and I can be like yeah that's cool but like why why should I care about it and so a lot of your writing is the like this is why you care like these is why like these details matter and like yeah I guess but and it really is tough sometimes because there's not one way to write a good art history paper and a lot of it depends on like specific pieces that you're talking about and like there are still theories in art history like different theories that you can apply to talk about things um and like kind of figuring out that balance of like you as a writer too like I spend more time writing on certain things than other things to do like other people in my major do so very cool I I've never taken an art history class but I feel like it's something that I want to take now after that blurb of how to write in the discipline and like I think the way that you've just spoken about art this entire uh, podcast so far has really inspired me to want to take a class. Should we transition into this next question, Evelyn? And I'm, I'm excited for this question. Which one? The one that's on top or the one that's on the bottom? The one that's on top. Okay. Build up to this. Who is your favorite Greek mythology figure and why okay hmm I like move my glasses I feel like this is a serious answer uh I really appreciate uh the character and figure of Circe in Greek mythology who was first introduced in Homer's Odyssey in like the 8th century BCE and she's this like mythical like goddess like quote-unquote witch that lives on the island Aiaia that you first meet when Odysseus lands upon her island. And she's the one that like, if you if you know, like she's the one that turns men into pigs. Uh, but I think she's a super cool figure and I've actually written a lot on her. The idea about like what, because, oh, okay. Slight backstory, I'm sorry. Like this is such a good question, but also I'm gonna talk forever. So please cut me off. Um, when Odysseus first goes on the island and like he sends his men off and they meet Circe 
and it seems like at least how Homer's presenting it like she just turns them into pigs she's like nah you can't be here like I'm gonna feed you and turn you into pigs and like one guy escapes and he goes back to Odysseus and he's like dude this lady just like turned all these men into pigs and like I don't know what's going on like I couldn't even go in there like too scary and Odysseus was like okay you kind of suck like I'm gonna go look around the island myself and so as he's like going about the island and then he runs into Hermes the Olympian god of like travelers and tricksters and he's like yo like if you go in there like this she's gonna turn you into a pig so I'm gonna give you this magic plant called molly m-o-l-y and if you have it, she can't turn you into a pig. And Odysseus is like, bet, I'm going to take the magic plan and then go confront her. So he goes to her house, like, walks into her home. And she's like, hey, like, have some soup so I can turn you into a pig. She doesn't say that, but he does it. And he's like, haha, can't turn me into a pig because I have this plan. And she's like, wow, this is terrible. Like, do you want to have sex with me? And he's like, I will if you promise not to, like, unmake me a man like in that paraphrase like ah if we have sex she's like oh okay like yeah you've got me like we can still have sex and i'll turn your men back from pigs uh and then she like becomes a figure in a couple of other later ones but i've written a lot on like does that actually mean that she's being given consent or like is she being forced or like coerced into having sexual relations out of fear for her life or like livelihood if, like, the one thing that she had to, like, keep herself safe in a way is being taken away from her and she can only use, like, her body and sexuality as a way to safeguard her and, like, there are other people on the island, like, is she thinking about their protection? But she's this very kind of, like, morally gray figure in a lot of Greek literature and I just think she's really cool. Like, she's a cool lady. That sounds cool. How do you um, spell her name again? Um, it's C-I-R-C-E, Circe, which of Iaya. Okay, so the next question is, do Percy Jackson novels accurately depict mythological figures? <laughs> um, no, not really. I think they're a really great introduction into like the idea of classics. Do they accurately represent a lot of things? Not really, but I think if they're like the Sparks Notes version, I feel like, like the fun Spark Notes version. Um, but I'll definitely say like I read Percy Jackson as a kid and I was like, wow, this is cool. But reading that also inspired my parents because I asked for a college textbook on folklore and mythology that I read like a picture book and like read all of the descriptions so I think it's a really great springboard and like it's still a series that has a lot of nostalgia and like it's it's a fun read like the way that Rick Riordan characterizes people is fun and like even when I'm reading sometimes like ancient texts like Homer or Hesiod like something that was written thousands of years ago I'm still like oh my god yeah like I could totally see Aries on like a motorbike right now like that would totally make sense to me um but yeah short answer no no well they're also like meant for kids too right so like if yeah. we told kids the real story that probably wouldn't be appropriate yeah yeah and I think like wow this is gonna sound like 
such a very unacademic answer, but like I think vibe wise of like the characters, they do really well. Is this actually like their full stories? No. And should they always be told to children? No, definitely not. Like classics is not really child friendly. Uh, But so for our final question, and since you're a graduating senior, can you describe for us your entire Puget Sound experience thus far in one word or a few words? Okay, I think one word, it'll require explanation, is personal. Um, And I think that, like, as I mentioned at the very beginning, like, I came in to college thinking, like, this is my time to, like, become the person I've always wanted to be. And I think, like, going through, like, the experience and not just, like, academic, but, like, socially and, like, being able to really figure out, like, I didn't want to become a different person. I just wanted to be more comfortable with who I was. Um, and I think finding individuals and like different like areas of study, like I knew I wanted to do art history, but I didn't know I wanted to do classics and I didn't know I wanted to do gender queer studies, even though like I was already like specializing in that in classics. I didn't know that was an option that I could, specializing that in art history, ha ha ha. I didn't know that was an option that I could get to kind of like personalize my own college experience. Um, Like finding groups of people that really helped me grow into the person I was meant to be, not the person I wanted to be. Cause I knew these were people that would like, are gonna wake up in like the middle of the night with me and like go and do like a stress food run to McDonald's and eat the apple pies with me in the parking lot. But they're also the people that are going to sit in the library with me for like six hours on a Sunday and just like let each other work. Um, And having that ability to not only personalize my college experience, but make it personal in a way that I was going to be able to find more about myself as an individual and how I want and how I get to choose to communicate that to other people. So personal that is an excellent word choice I think it's okay it's not too shabby I think it's great like if you had asked me that question I I wouldn't have come up with anything I'm not a words person so (laughs) yeah I definitely did just like sit here blankly staring at my computer for a hot sec and then then we started to think Okay, so that was the last question, and now we're going to enter into the teach us something segment. And um, Chloe, what do you have for us? I am going to teach you how to spice up uh, a box mixed uh, brownies. Let's choose brownies. Uh, I stress bake. Fun fact, love to bake. Uh, Also love to not be stressed, so I do it a lot. Uh, And I think I always have, like, a box mixed of, like, cake or brownies or something in my cabinet if, like, I don't want to do, like, a super time-intensive thing. But, I mean, box mixes aren't bad. I know they get a lot of hate, but they make really solid baked goods. And I also think brownies are, like, a great comfort food. They're also not as complicated as, like, cakes with as many moving parts. Like, I don't have to frost them. I can just, like, make the mix, stick them in the oven, immediately eat them and scald my tongue, but, like, be happy with it. That being said, 
brownies are so rich and like sometimes it's the middle of the night I want something sweet but I don't want to like overload myself with like something super rich like like a Betty Crocker Ghirardelli like boss brownie mix so my favorite way to spice them up and make them less intense is to make white miso tahini brownies and so the white miso is really helpful and like it's a really mellow flavor like very soft but even if I don't get the full like miso bite mixing it with the chocolate really helps just calm the intensity down a little bit and just make it a little bit of like a smoother taste across your tongue and then the tahini really helps to like mix this kind of like salty umami with the really decadent chocolate mixes so i think this is best with the ghirardelli double chocolate box brownie mix you can get it anywhere and then you can get like pre-made tahini, like go to Trader Joe's, you can get it like Safeway, um, like really easy to get. And then just like a thing, like packet or like tub of white miso. And you add the white miso in like a tablespoon of two, like as you're making the box, the box brownie set. So you like add in the powder mix that's already comes with it. It asks you to put in like two eggs some water and some oil and like plop in your miso with there and then you can mix that all together and then I have that one bowl my other bowl I just like get some tahini together warm it up a little bit so it's easier to like spread and mix around uh put brownie mix pour that bad boy into a greased pan I'm a big fan of a good eight by eight pan greased with butter uh pour that in and then with the tahini mix um, I do swirls, so you'll take the mix, start to pour it in, and, like, continually move it around the pan, and then with, like, a fork or, like, a spatula, that's the word I'm looking for, or, like, a knife, you can take it and then just, like, gently swirl the tahini blobs around, and you get this really nice kind of, like, gold and, like, deep brown, like, marbled brownie when you're done with it, but... Then as you're eating them, you get this really nice balance of like salty, like umami smooth of the tahini mixed with this like mellow, rich chocolate flavor. And then like it just, they balance really well. But yeah, I, I think that's best way. Spice up a mixed brownie set, but you can do a lot of really great things with like boxed mixes. And if you're interested in like experimenting with baking or like doing something new that you're not sure if it's going to work out well, uh, I definitely recommend start with a box mix, do the experiments, and then take that into making something new. I just want to add for our listeners at home that Chloe is an incredible, incredible baker. Literally, you made croissants for our staff meeting last year, and it was the best croissant I've ever had in my entire life. No joke. Thank you. It's so sweet. I am working on, like, a modified croissant recipe right now. Because you know how you can make, like, croissant sandwiches, but they're just, like, you cut apart the croissant and that's it. But I'm trying to see if there's a way that I can, like, embed the flavors of, like, like a traditional like ham cheese sandwich like in the croissant like bread and like batter itself uh my past two experiments have been okay but i'm i'm hopeful for a better third it's gonna be like the same 
flaky pastry, right? Like soft, buttery inside, flaky outside, but you bite into it and you get like the faint taste of like ham and brie. So it's like super thinly sliced ham. And then I melt the brie and then I like spread it out on a sheet and I do like super, super thin slices. And then when you're making croissants, you have to like fold and flatten the butter into sheets. And so with every butter fold, I'm also putting in like the ham and the brie. So it makes it really thin and like really tiny sheets. So then like the croissants come out like kind of striped in a way, but then like it's like a tiny little like strand of like butter pastry ham cheese. That sounds very experimental and very cool. And I hope the third time comes out better and I really want to try those. Thank you. Honestly, I think we should have a serious conversation with Rachel about adding a fourth branch of just you cooking. Like we'll make appointments with you and we'll cook, you know, via Zoom together. Yeah, yeah. hit me up. Well, we should probably thank you for coming on the show. This was so exciting and yeah, we're just, we're happy that you're here. Thank you for having me. I was very excited when you put out the call for people to come on the podcast. And I was like, wow, I could do that. I'll t- I talk a lot already, so I'll just be on the podcast and do it. Well, you're welcome back anytime. So sweet. So kind. And you're both thanks. wonderful hosts. Oh, thanks. Thanks. thanks.